Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray. And if you're a multifamily investor, whether you're an active investor, passive investor, just kind of casually interested in real estate investing, well, this is the best YouTube show and podcast designed really for you to help you make the most informed decisions. We're trying to bring all of not just information and general data, but the best pieces of information, the latest research reports, articles, original opinions, and content, anything revolving the multifamily industry, real estate, and the economy, again, so we can make some just better decisions going forward. Joined by Director of Communications and Marketing, Matt Bosnagle here once again. We've got a lot of stuff to go over. Not the least importantly is the Federal Reserve just there. Jerome Powell is uh, at a press conference right now. We've been monitoring it. We're trying to bring you some of the latest information coming out of the Fed, the Federal Open Market Committee meeting. A lot to break down, but also reports from CBRE, multiple reports from Marcus and Millichap, NMHC, RealPage, and Apartment List. Let's get into it. All right, bringing it back in, Matt. It's an exciting day today. We got uh, Jay Powell. You know, he's talking right now, laying it down. Nothing really new, but before we kind of get into that, into some of the kind of really breaking news that's going to be moving, really macro um, economies, all of the economy, global, global economy. Yeah. Not just in the United States, but you know, the the Federal Reserve. They can be the limiter or accelerator on the economy. And we've had a lot of these macro discussions of, you know, what are rising interest rates? How does that affect the market and specifically real estate? And how does this slowing growth, um, how is, are we going to enter a recession, a technical recession? Mm-hmm. It's, it's bred a lot of uncertainty and just a lot of dark clouds. But I think there's some really some green shoots and some positivity mm-hmm. to, that we can look at as well. And what a lot of this means, because there's a ton of nuance. To it, yeah, and you can just be confused and uncertain. But I think there's some opportunities that we should be paying attention to. But first, before we get into that, how's your week going, Matt? It's going pretty well. My kids' baseball game, they won. So hey, there we go. Congrats! Is this a like coach pitch or is this like the T ball or or what is it? It is one on? above T ball. They have a little catapult. Oh, okay. That, uh, that oh, throws I, okay. the ball. Very cool. Yeah. So I think it replaced the dad's pitch. Yeah, but the yeah. dads probably weren't very good, and or yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the same team pitches to each other, so it's there's no cheat. You know, yeah, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. All right, yeah. well, that that that's awesome. Well, <laughs> let's just get right into talking about what's going on over at the Federal Reserve. Because again, you know, th- this is live when we're recording this. We're recording this uh, May fourth, about two fifty in the afternoon. So you're probably going to be watching this on Thursday or Friday, assuming that you are subscribed to. Um, the Great Capital YouTube channel, or you are getting the podcast. If you're listening to the podcast, watching, just looking at Jerome Powell, answering some questions from yep. reporters about the most recent decision to raise it, the interest rate of the Fed funds rate 50 basis points. Mm-hmm. He got right to the point, too. In his opening remarks, he didn't he didn't bury the lead. It was no. almost a foregone conclusion was how quick he got to it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and everyone knew. Yeah. I mean, it's, it had been communicated loud and clear. Mm-hmm. They had been out front and center saying that most likely we're going to see a 50 basis point increase to the Fed funds rate, and as well as discussing shrinking the balance sheet, yep. um, all with the idea of bringing inflation in check, taming inflation, trying to slow growth down um, so we don't overheat, so inflation doesn't impact. So raising the interest rates 500 basis points, that's a 
I can wrap my mind yeah, around 50, that. Yep. But then, or, or yeah. Um, what about this reducing the balance sheet? And does that have any? So obviously, it's like I know that that has an effect on on interest rates, maybe an indirect effect. But does it have any other effects in addition to interest rates? Does it make it harder for people to get a loan yeah. um, in the future? I, th- I think it's a good question. And I mean, theoretically, it, it should because what you're doing is removing liquidity from the system. I mean, the Federal Reserve has been buying billions of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, agency mortgage-backed securities, really throughout the pandemic. I mean, I think when mm-hmm. there was 60 billion of mortgage-backed securities a month, and I think another you know, 50 or 60 of, of treasuries. So now they've announced, and again, they, they just mentioned this, looking at reducing the balance sheet now by about $30 billion worth of treasuries every single month, and then about $17.5 billion of mortgage-backed securities. Now, the, the actual treasuries are going to increase to $60 billion after a few months, and then they're going to increase the sale of mortgage-backed securities by up to $30 million, sorry, $35 billion over the next couple months in addition. Wow. This is just another tool that they can use. Because, you know, they've got a couple of tools. One's just moving rates. One is buying assets, buying mm-hmm. bonds. And those mortgage-backed securities, those are loans for real estate. Yeah. You know, mortgages. And so not only they're going the other way, it's not like they're going to just stop buying, but they're actually going to be selling off. So there's going to be less liquidity. Mm-hmm. They've been the largest buyer of these mortgage-backed securities. And so that for the lenders who are actually making these loans – if you always know you've got a buyer, it's easy to make the loans. But if yeah. you're not sure if you've got a buyer, mm-hmm. um, and in fact, you've got the biggest buyer who's selling right now, that can decrease the amount of liquidity and make just less money available for loans. You can't get a loan. You can't do a business venture. That has a result of slowing the economy. Yeah. Okay. So banks then, faced with that problem that they can't, that they don't have the money to give the loans out. Poten- I mean, potentially. potentially. I mean, there's, there's other buyers out there in, in the market, you know, besides the Fed, mm-hmm. but you know, they've been the largest buyer for the last about two years or so. So then as a solution, you know, supply and demand, then they either raise, raise the rates. Well, the, yeah, these are, they're driven by market forces. So when you have somebody selling mm-hmm. something, you know, the price of bond, the value of, of like a bond mm-hmm. um, is, is inverse to the interest rate. So when you're selling something, you know, that price is going going to go down and down and down. And that means the interest rate is going to go up and up and up. Yeah. Because if they need to incentivize someone to get, you want to have a higher, get a higher interest rate, the value of something is relatively yeah. you know, lower. So, you know, theoretically, the interest rates on you know mortgage back secure on 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 mortgages will continue to go up now the most of those mortgages are based off of the 10 year treasury or indexed to the 10 year treasury which as you know we're seeing at least right now um, was hover, hovering right around 3% mm-hmm. which is a full 100 basis points more than it was just a couple months ago yeah. and so i think it's important just to make sure that everyone knows about what we're talking about mm-hmm. in terms of interest rates being moved because i know for a lot of people they think the Fed controls all the interest rates, and they really only control. Just turn the dial up. Yeah, they're like, let's just turn it all up. But <laughs> they really, the only interest rate they really control is that the Fed funds rate, mm-hmm. and um, and that's that's like one, you know one of the shortest term fi- financing rates, and they have less control, really, not as much influence over like the longer dated maturities like the ten year Treasury. That's more market driven. Okay. And that's why we've seen, you know, the ten year has increased has already a lot of the movement has already been priced in. And so that's where we went from 
2% a couple months ago, all the way up to 3%, where we were at, you know, 0.49% in the 10 year treasury back in 2020. Yeah. So that's different from that, again, that Fed funds rate that basically kind of sits there until the Fed moves. But then that gives room for all the other rates to move up as well. Okay. And then so just to kind of circle back to asset purchases, then if they want a an effect on the other rates on the 10 year, maybe, is that what this, these asset purchases are meant to kind of indirectly move? Or is that is that... I think it's in general, I think that there, so that's, there's, there's a lot of talk, especially in 2021, 2020, um, and 2021 about like yield curve control, where mm-hmm. they're really trying to affect like the longer end of the, the curve by, you know, buying more um, 10 year treasuries or selling 10 year treasuries or, or whichever dated maturity they're trying to influence because mm-hmm. they can be such an, an influential okay, okay. Uh, buyer. That makes sense. But, but I think that's, that, that's not as much the stated goal as, we're just trying to slow down the economy in order to slow down inflation. Okay. Now, there's some other just some takeaways. I mean, I made some notes while while, while J-Pal was was speaking and just I want to kind of go through some of them. So, the we we mentioned the reduction in the size of the Fed's balance sheet, um, but also looking out in the future for future rate hikes. They are going to be contemplating additional 50 basis point increases to the Fed funds rate. At the next several meetings, um, Steve Leisman asked if they were considering, from CNBC, asked if they were considering rate increases beyond 50 basis points, maybe 75 or a full percentage point. Jerome Powell said that rate increases at 75 basis points are, or more are not currently being considered. The only thing being considered are 50 um, basis point increases, but all those decisions will be made essentially in real time at the meetings themselves. Although they did quite a bit of um, signaling prior to this meeting, so um, they really want to get the market prepared, not have it to be such a. Um, they don't want it to just you know snap one day. You know rates are going to increase, even though that's the case. They want the market to be able to price as much as yeah. that in, so it's sort of a soft landing. Mm-hmm. So fifty basis points potentially at future meetings. They really want to get inflation down to two percent of which of which is their target. But he said that you know there could be further supplies, surprises with inflation. They're going to be nimble, but he has uh, hot, highly attentive to the inflation risks in yeah. the economy. Very Seems like he really that. led with that. Yeah. Whereas before, maybe he wouldn't have mentioned, but they've got yeah. a target. It's 2%. Yeah. And it's not this, you know, last year we heard this talk about, no, no, it's really like a, it's it's like a moving target. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But they seem... Well, they hit their average now. Yeah. Because yeah, I was exactly. giving them room. They're like, oh, now we're averaging a little bit over. Yeah. And does that mean they need to go you know, negative now to get the average? Hmm. But it, what we've talked about a lot is it all depends on what period you're using. Because if yeah. you go back, you know, 10 or 12 years, well, we were kind of below 2% for hmm. that quite a long time. But... Maybe that's in the past and doesn't mean as much anymore. I think here's is a really good point, and this is kind of sort of transitioning back to multifamily. The whole reason that they are doing this, can do this, is that the economy. And this is this is a near this is a paraphrase, but a near quote. The economy is strong enough to handle this tighter monetary policy. Yeah. The only reason why we can do this right now is because the economy is so strong is on such solid footing. That's the, a, that's a good point. Yeah. The labor market is tight wages. I mean, we're seeing the highest levels of wage growth that we have really ever seen, mm-hmm. which is very positive. And um, we still have very strong household and businesses are in very good standing. And so the idea here is that 
they're trying to find that soft landing or as uh, j pal said in the press conference hey maybe a softish landing <laughs> maybe not soft like super soft but like soft enough yeah and what we've been talking about matt is it's easy we could see a recession but is it is it going to be a recession of the real economy, or is it going to be more of a real technical well, recession? Well, and in some more of the articles that we cover this week, there is really some great signs that we've got we've got a lot more armor this time around than we did during the Great Recession. Yeah, and there there's a lot of great things that are going on in the economy. I just think it's almost like we've got to balance the books. Yeah. What I what I noticed too specifically was, you know, Jay Powell was in this awkward position of having to talk about job creation as almost like a problem. And he's like, I'm promising job creation is going to yeah. go down. And, and then, wage growth. And, and, yeah, and wage growth coming down. And which is, you know, if you're an employer, yeah, the tight labor market is a problem. But it's just hard seeing that in the same sentence. And then, and he did get a specific question that asked, well, you know, you're going to lower job creation. Is that going to mean there's an economic downturn? Yeah. And he's like, well, and that's what led him to say, yeah, well, it it's going to be a, a a little bit of a rough landing. Yeah, he's like, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to yeah. be easy. Yeah. He's like, it, it, it's this is not going to be easy. But you know, can we get through it? Where again, like on a technical basis, you know, mm-hmm. recession, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. We've already had one. Yeah, we've already had one. But again, but a lot of people, it's 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 kind of a nuanced um, understanding of it. But if you look at why it, why it's negative in terms of we're looking at a, a base effect. Mm-hmm. We had incredible growth. I mean, you don't yeah. necessarily want to continue the same levels of growth. You want a little bit of like mm-hmm. normalcy and you can't get to that level of normalcy without some kind of reversion. So that's going to require maybe a little bit of, you know, negative growth to kind of, kind of get right there um, in the middle and in the sweet spot. Yeah. And so the question is we could be, we could easily be in the recession, the recession that mm-hmm. we're worried about. That's already could already be here. I yeah. mean, the stock market is, you know, the, I mean, tech stocks are some down 50%. You know, the broader market, I think, is down like, you know, 30%. Mm-hmm. So we've already seen, you know, in, you know, public equities that all already occur. We, you know, we're in a bear market for bonds. So, and we're seeing negative GDP growth. I'm not saying it's going to be exactly like the pandemic recession because we had all the layoffs and there was even more um, disruption. But I'm wondering if we could see no recession is completely pain free or painless. And people there's still a lot of people that get damaged and it's not good. But is this kind of we had the snap recession at the beginning of pandemic. Do we need just one more kind of quick recession, even if it's just a technical one? Before we kind of flush out the the volatility and the the noise out of the system, so we can return to some level of normalcy, even if that's elevated growth and looks different than it was pre pandemic. Mm-hmm. But do we need one more kind of reshuffling to get to the other side? And so the question for us is, how does that affect multifamily apartments, yeah. real estate, and for any investor, how they're going to allocate themselves mm-hmm. in this type of environment? Because it's uncertain. Yeah. No, that I think that that's that seems to be the the big takeaway is if you have to wait on every eyebrow raise of Jay Powell, you know, during these meetings and try to and try to predict things, that's an uncertain environment anyways. You don't yeah. want to have you don't want to be in that situation and hopefully they want to create a predictable environment and that's exactly. that's what's a little bit better for investment. But I will say, you know, the amount of savings that individuals have and that yeah. the economy has is is at an all-time high. Yeah. And so that could be a really, you know, 
you could lop that off. That's giving people cushion. Maybe that's why we aren't seeing such a so much more of a reaction, so much more of so much more like anxiety and alarm bells. You know, people are kind of calling for it, but it's not hitting the headlines. People are talking about inflation. They're not yeah. talking about, you know, stagnation. So yeah. maybe that's because there's just more of an economic cushion with that savings. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of there's more stagflation talk, I yeah. guess, these days. Just but uh, yeah, but the economy seems to be really continuing to cook as things open up. But they're, they're all kind of external factors that you mm-hmm. have to be you know looking for that you either could continue to drive inflation or not. I mean, you know, China locking down. I mean, that, that that's one yeah. factor. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is another major factor that we still mm-hmm. don't know. To me, it's just that there's so much clouded uncertainty. People just aren't sure what to do, if to do anything at all. And I think having a decent cash position isn't a bad idea right now. But we also have to look at some of those asset classes that are relatively insulated, that are opposed to outperform. And again, I'm really not just saying this um, as a major investor into multifamily and apartments. I've kind of done a reassessment of like, all right, is it what are the conditions right now? What's mm-hmm. the new thesis? Because we're we're in a different world than we were, you know, six months ago, six months before that. It, it keeps um, changing. The short-term conditions are changing. Not a lot on the long-term has changed. And in fact, some of the long-term changes or the big macro changes are even ben- more beneficial to multifamily. And I see continued performance. Yeah. Now, how interest rates are going to affect transactions that's a slightly different story. That's more of a near term. Mm-hmm. But looking at it a long term hold, you still see some really positive yeah. um, fundamentals. I, um, I, I agree. So, and maybe let's just lead that into kind of the first report. Um, this is from CBRE Economic Watch. Real estate fundamentals expected to improve despite Q1 drop in US GDP. Matt, this maybe surprised a couple of people that real estate is actually looking good with rising interest rates. Election GDP, what's, <laughs> what's, right. what's going on? You know, this um, this really stands in for a for a collection of articles and a collection of takes that I that I've gathered in the past week about the slower economy as indicated by this negative GDP number of one point four four percent. Really, for a dismal figure like that, you'd expect a lot more anxiety and more discussion saying that, well, this proves that the economy is going to be bad. But instead, there's a lot of a, a lot of examination of the number itself and a lot of reasons to be a little bit more optimistic than a negative number would otherwise imply. More common really are headlines like this one from Forbes that says negative 1.4 GDP just reminds us of the abject stupidity of GDP. That's that's my favorite line of logic, mm-hmm. by the way. I don't yeah. I don't like it. Therefore, it's dumb. But there are reasons that may, maybe it's a little dumb. I do think it may lump a lot of things together that if you look at them separately, you can kind of explain things in a way that doesn't necessarily mean all negative. Yeah. Uh, employment and wages are going up. That's what, you know, we've got this situation where the Fed is actively trying to cool down the economy. So that's a, you know, that's a sign against this negative number in and of itself. Yeah. I think that, you know, consumption grew, certain areas of investment grew, but on the other end side of the scale, as a CNBC article puts it, complications in inventories and international trade dragged the whole quarter down. There's kind of some export-import imbalance, and there were certain private investments that went down. And also, you know, in a more general level, the 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 idea that the U.S. is recovering at a at a faster pace than other countries is hurting our GDP and causing and kind of contributing to that out of whack. Yeah, yeah. Export. Well, I I know the 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 strength of the U.S. dollar. I know isn't helping that that trade um, imbalance either. 
you want to kind of get into some of the breaking down some of the different asset classes CBRE does in terms of the strength? Yeah. So I think it's it's interesting. They're a little bit more confident about about office as uh, as COVID concerns recede and yeah. then re, you know reopening retail is also going great. There's another article or another short video that that we're going to cover that talks about how some investors are moving into retail because it's got high cap rates and it's a promising market. Yeah. Um, I think industrial is also, you know, positive outlook. It's it did amazingly well during the during the pandemic and even now there's even though I think that they're, you know, Amazon posted didn't they didn't do as well as they thought, but I think that may not be the full story yeah. when it comes to the industrial market and multifamily. Obviously, you know, coupled with a robust job market, higher mortgage rates, and less single family affordability, this will bolster demand for multifamily. You're going to see that again. This idea that high mortgage rates and single home aff- affordability is moving people into multifamily. This is something yeah. we said, and something yeah. that you. This statement, almost verbatim, is in like several of the reports that came across. Yeah, I mean that, that's the thing to me that's it, it's kind of a pretty no brainer and very yeah. obvious connection um, to make because you have a lot of people. I mean, household formation has has gone up and people are looking for a place to live, but there's a lot of people who just can't. There are more renters by necessity, not that they are not well off, but they just can't, they don't have the down payment to buy a home or that they maybe do, but they're just a little bit more cautious and they're not feeling as strong about about buying a house, maybe at the top of the market and paying a high Mm -hmm. interest rate. And they're saying, well, I'm going to delay that decision or maybe rent for at least another year. Yeah. Um, And then it's also just the people who actually can not afford to buy a home, that percentage is even larger, that renters by necessity. And occupancy rates are already at an all-time high, vacancies an all-time low. So you're not going to see higher rates of vacancy with increased yeah. demand and a higher you know, resident pool. I mean, tell me how that would work. Yeah. And so what's that going to do? Higher occupancy, higher occupancy rates leads to higher rent growth. Mm-hmm. And that's also corresponding with increases in wages that yep. will support some degree of rent growth. And so I wonder if this is going to increase. So I'm kind of skipping ahead, but there oh, is good. there is a relevant little research brief, really, by uh, Marcus and Millichap yep. on housing. And they predict that that housing in more expensive class A properties, the de- that demand is specifically going to go up. Yep, I, I kind of it. think it's going to go up across the board. And specifically, people that want more space, more square footage, maybe they are getting three bedrooms instead of two bedrooms. And that may happen, you know, in, in B class. Like, I, I think that it's really interesting to see. And, and again, this um, this restated position that uh, that mortgage rates climbing are going to push demand I, I think it's definitely more than more than just into luxury apartments. I think everywhere, no matter yeah. what, no matter what side, it's gonna it's gonna be higher demand. There's it's not just you know yeah. the wealthy lifestyle. So Matt, it's not as though people at you know, living in COVID, you know C class or B class community. The you could easily say it's like look yeah maybe their wages has ri- have risen a little bit three percent five percent but they can't afford the fifteen percent twenty percent rent increase yeah I think that's true and so what you're seeing but what you're going to see is people not necessarily staying at the same property but they're going to be moving down in class yeah and and so you're going to see the people who were were living at maybe A class maybe move down to B class the people who are going to be buying a home moving into A class and so you see this kind of like shift to downward. 
you know, in a recession as things tighten. And then as the economy expands, you kind of see a shift upward, hopefully, of people moving up in class. Yeah. You know, the people who are living in the C class assets moving into a B class asset. People living in the A, finally buying a home. What I wonder is if a three bedroom, a class B apartment is going to have more competition for it than maybe a two bedroom class A apartment, just because there are people that are, you know, expecting home, they have a family, Mm -hmm. they want that, but then they're kind of waiting it out or they're unable to for whatever reason. It may drive a specific floor plan um, more than others. I think think you're right. And it's it's so different from a couple of years ago because everyone didn't want the three beds. Everyone, they'd be like, oh, there's a lot of three beds here. You you get a, a lower price per square foot on your three but three bedroom units mm-hmm. you usually and usually your studios you're getting the highest you know per square foot um so you're making m- more economic use and more profitable overall as a property mm-hmm. multifamily we don't always look we look at it a per square foot but it's not always like the driving metric we're looking at a per unit but there's so much demand for the three bedroom floor plans yeah. and they have a, there's only a small percentage of those a lot of properties don't even have three bedroom floor plans and i think that you could see some three bedroom at a B class being more expensive than a two bedroom at yep. an A class. All depending, you know, I think there's a couple other factors that that might influence that. But there's only a handful of three bedroom apartments in a market. Yeah, I don't see why they wouldn't be able to get a, a you know a pretty nice premium. Yeah. for that, and we're we're seeing that already. Mm-hmm. So and and you know uh, accompanying all this talk of demand, there is still a supply issue, and that's something that you know to, to keep in mind is we're we're not building the rate or really even as another one of these reports the ratio yeah. of multifamily units to single family homes that we should be building. Yeah. So that's you know, that's just another thing. It, it, it's going to be fascinating. So um, do you want to go back to the other Margerson Millichap? Yeah, let's video? let's watch that, that video for sure. You know, we're on the Margerson Millichap chain. <laughs> Again. Where out of order again there's we like so many times where i bit. i will i'll research all this stuff I'll, I'll get a kind of sense of the issues that i want to talk about and then i watch a john chang video who does it perfectly yeah, in like five minutes <laughs> so just summarize since we're not going to play the audio yeah of, of, of john so, chang from marcus and Millichap. so this is really a video that's based on a conversation he had with three different property types and they're all talking about whether cre investors are going to sit things out or what mm-hmm. are you know what are yeah. these investors interested in and one of them a multifamily broker based in florida has marked a shift away from apartments and into alternative property with higher cap rates like okay. retail. Yep. There's another one that says that, yeah, I'm a retail and retail's doing pretty strong as well. And, the, and, and one of the reasons is this highly competitive apartment market has investors squeezed between low cap rates and high interest rates. Yep. And that has led to lower investor demand. And again, like I'm, I'm going to come back to this point later specifically because there is this idea of people sitting out of lower investor sentiment that we'll see in an NMHC report in just a second. But then there was uh, there was really three takeaways for um, that that John Chang had, and, and the first is really I think maybe the most interesting is that increased jobs numbers and savings have investors that are looking at the long term because that's what CRE investors do. <laughs> They're, they have them more confident than not when it comes to the economic future and the future of the commercial real estate market mm-hmm. in general. He said, for the first time in 30 years, U.S. households have more cash savings than debt. I think that's a big deal. I think that you can't... There's more cash savings than than, than liabilities out there. Yeah. Wow. That's, and, that's fascinating. And because it's a ratio, I don't think you can really discount this whole thing because of inflation. I think, yes, you'll 
haircut all those savings a little bit from from inflation and and that may give it more momentum specifically but man uh passing a debt thresholds that that is lasted for 30 years i think that makes me feel like not all of this wealth is going to be eroded by inflation yeah we've got some headroom if something yeah 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 and and john shank's second point is that investors have a lot of assets and property types for investment in commercial real estate and i think more relevant for multifamily investors that there are a lot of locations a lot of markets to choose from Mm -hmm. more places really to look should investors be dissatisfied with lower cap rates that can be found maybe in the, in the competitive market. And then finally, as I alluded to before, you can see our CRE investors are looking long term. I think that it is promising, at least in his conversations with these with these brokers who are seeing a lot of investors, you know, each individually, maybe that's what their opinions represent. They've got their their eyes on the horizon and they're a little bit more confident about the long term than these short term things like uh, raising interest rates or, you know, GDP that, that may have people scared. But I, I, I would happen to agree with this opinion rather than some of the other. There are some elements of sentiment that can swing a little wildly, mm-hmm. and I'd, I'd hold tight on any doubt that, that you might see yeah. Uh, currently. Yeah, I think the, the biggest question that I'm getting is, you know, what will cap rates do with rising interest rates? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good question now that we've, we've learned that, you know, cap rates and interest rates aren't, you know, pegged to each other. They're, they're, they are correlated, but they're not, they're not, the correlation is a little bit more wishy-washy than I think pe- many people yeah. believe that they are um, because there's so many other factors. I mean, cap rate is, you know, a depiction of the last year's performance, not over the next couple of years, mm-hmm. the, the future performance. And with high levels of growth, you know, the cap, cap rate means less and less and less. And even your interest rate, you're maybe paying higher, but if you have a high rate of growth, it doesn't in- encapsulate the entire you know return profile and expectations for um for for an, an investment yeah and so i think a lot of people are they're concerned that the cap rates might rise but that doesn't mean necessary values are going to decline even though cap rate you know va- properties are valued with a cap rate but again if you but what is noi going to look like if you're seeing strong noi growth which is the numerator in that equation mm-hmm. you're still going to see flat if not positive um, growth and we haven't seen even though it's a little counterintuitive um we're going to look at the nmhc survey here in a minute talking about kind of investor sentiment developers sentiment you know availability of equity and debt and all of that and, and people are not as optimistic about there's not as much equity out mm-hmm. there but there are people are still buying real estate i yeah. mean just from again anecdotally what we're seeing in the market there's still a lot of interest there's a lot of dry powder that's still out there. Definitely yeah. more caution, though. I mean, we definitely, especially from more of like the individual investors, there's it's uncertainty. They're just not sure what to do in general. And they're just like, I don't know if I want to do anything right now. Yeah. Which I don't think is an unreasonable position, but you may just miss out on those opportunities. Mm-hmm. And But that that's okay for, for some people. They'd rather just not take the risk and, and miss out on the opportunity. Yeah. I think if anything, and this is and this is kind of leading into this discussion of the NMHC survey, is that apartment investors may be shying away from these low cap rate growth markets. They yep, may say, that's, I don't think it's going to keep growing. And so even if it has a cap rate it, or, or, the it's, growth, or, or it's just gotten over its skis a little bit. Yeah. And gotten so crazy. And I'm thinking and that's exactly I was going to say this, it, it, Matt, when you were finished um, and not the cut no, you no, off, no. but. I, we've, we are already seeing this with some buyers that were in the Sun Belt, in the Phoenixes, you know, maybe yep. in Atlanta or Tampa, wherever it might be, some of these really high growth markets that have seen a lot of growth, incredible amount of cap rate compan- mm-hmm. compression, prices increase. 
and the cap rates just don't make sense, um, especially with rising interest rates. They hardly made sense when you had interest rates kind of in the mid twos. And so they're looking for stable markets that just weren't bid up that kind of make sense. And they're seeing the Midwest as that safe haven and that opportunity in a greener pasture. And we're already in the Midwest, so we're seeing yep. new buyers coming in and a lot of interest, a lot of institutional interest. Um, and, and it kind of is at a sweet spot where it's like you've got some markets that are still growing, yep. but you can buy them at, at decent prices. I think that that may be, you know, for really the opportunity for right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, there's a powerful narrative that's still going on about the growth of the sun of these sunbelt markets. Yeah, it just may not make sense with the percentages that you're that you're going to get from you know from the cap rates in the market. Yeah. All right, so let's move on over to this NMHC um, survey quarterly survey. They do, they do it every quarter. Um, NMHC quarterly survey of apartment conditions, April 2022. They do a survey of large apartment owners and developers. Here, let's see. Um, I'll just read how they do this report index. The report index numbers are based on data compiled from quarterly surveys of NMHC members. Survey responses reflect the change, if any, from the previous quarter. So, so the, let's look at what they're asking. Market tightness, you know, how hard it is to win a deal. You know, this goes all the way back to January 2018. So right now in April, the market tightness index is at 60. You know, the higher the number, the more tight it is. The lower the number, the less tight it would be. And then, so, you know, one good comparison, if we go back just as a counterexample, is early on in the pandemic in April of 2020. I mean, it was all the way at 12. It's like it wasn't tight because no one was doing anything. Yeah, that's a real low point. Real low point. And then in July of 2021, it was, I mean, a 96. People were saying it's as tight as pretty much it has ever been. And it was tightest that they have. It has been since they started tracking this. I mean, 96 is, that's very tight. I mean, that makes sense because we were trying to buy deals yeah. in that period. Seems uh, like 60 is a pretty good number. Yeah, pretty healthy. I mean, but it's like because, it was in July 2019. Yeah, yeah. Which was kind of similar times of interest rates outside of that though outside of that's a you know there's no time before july 2019 where it was above 60 so it's still relatively tight yeah so sales volume so you know decent amount of sales volume although it's coming down a little bit from july 2021 again back in april 2020 it was all the way at six so nothing was trading back then the two pieces, the two questions that I found the most interesting and had the biggest changes, though, Matt, were the equity financing index and the debt yep. financing index. Um, so right now, in well, April 2022, they had the equity financing index. It's just like the the availability of equity out there in the market. It's at 35. So equity, like how interested are investors? Okay. Exactly. Yeah, for, for equity investors, you know, not not lenders, but you know, they're okay. putting you know risk equity into a multifamily project this could be institutional this could be retail this is probably more institutional so it's at 35 we haven't seen 35 since july 2020 which was 34 and then it really it bottomed april of 2020 which kind of makes sense because everyone was just pumping on the brakes so i mean that i mean the whole like world well and stopped pre, at that and, point and pre-pandemic it's still low. Like 35 is a low number. It's usually in you know, around fifties or maybe even, or, or, you know, kind of in the mid fifties yeah. um, before that people were like, yeah, it's out there mm-hmm. halfway. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then in, the big change, I guess was in, um, again, April, 2021, July, 2021, where there's just a, you know, fervor, um, yep. to buy these assets for good reason. 
but that ha- but that has cooled i think really with just all of this uncertainty then the debt financing ind- index again you know this I, I this is entirely related to interest rates because there's still plenty of debt out there i mean the agencies mm-hmm. they haven't even come close to hitting their quotas and you know back in this is it's been loose monetary policy i mean it's starting to to tighten up here in January, it seems as interest rates had risen a, a little bit, not not much, but the ten year had started to rise some. Uh, but I mean, this is compared, you know, to you know, let's say in, in even January or where, where's July twenty one. I mean, seventy one. I would even think that that would be higher. But you know, it has been kind of moderately kind of throughout. I mean, it decreased in April of twenty twenty, which is interesting because even in April of twenty twenty. This is this is what's surprising, is that I mean the CMB, CMBS markets kind of froze up. There wasn't a lot of CMBS. I don't think there was any CMBS lending going on. A lot of the because we won a deal, but someone was trying to close a CMBS and the, hmm. the financing went away. We were able to pick it up. A lot of bridge lenders just got out of the market. Not all, but many got out of the market. Today, I mean, CMBS is still active. There's plenty of bridge debt. There's plenty of debt funds. The only difference is interest rates. Mm-hmm. And and that's the effect. Bring it to a nine, which is, I believe, the, is the tightest or the lowest it's ever been on record. It's never even been in the single digits before. Now, in the in 2018, is that the year of the taper tantrum? That's when they, yeah, they, they were um, rising interest rates. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. those rising interest rates brought it down to the lowest was 22. So nine, it's a lot less than 22. Yep. Yep. Now, and again, and Matt, you had mentioned this earlier. These aren't like scientific numbers of this is just, this is like hundred percent measuring people's general opinion about things. That's why I I thought I have a little bit of skepticism. I'm actually not that surprised about the nine (laughs) figure because that's what, what people are thinking about. You know, this is all this for the first quarter. And, and there's a, and there is a discreet real, a, a, a real fact that's behind this. But the idea that this equity is unavailable, that's surprising to me. And, I don't know how much <laughs> I don't know how much I trust it because it runs counter to this idea that there are there's so much dry powder out there and I don't get you know I can't reconcile that it's it's kind of difficult and my first explanation maybe the, maybe the dry powder's out there well here go, go ahead go ahead so my first explanation is, and I really came to this last but it's it's a it's a boring explanation that rising interest rates can bring down returns and when investments have lower returns people are going to be less interested in investing you got to change your business plan if, or or, or find a, a lot better deal and maybe that's what's driving off investors see i i think that that it maybe plays a, a, a part of it i i think though that you know yeah return and returns are important but you know people often they are important but people are most often investing into a story and, and based on feeling as much as we crunch the numbers and the numbers are important and the returns are all mm-hmm. the, all that you got to have all that that's important but that's not why people invest in something. People invest in something because they've got a feeling about something. They feel good about it. It feels right. They like the group. They like the idea. They like the story. People invest in narratives. Yeah. And the narrative right now is, you know, uncertainty, inflation, war, rising interest rates. We just don't know. It's 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 there's noise and through clouded minds, confused minds can't make decisions. You know, confused mind says no. And so, yeah, returns. Are, I mean, let me put it this way: I haven't had a conversation 
with an investor recently where they're like, oh, yeah, the returns are just too low for me, even though the returns are lower than they were um, previously, at least cash mm-hmm. on cash. The IRRs are penciling out about the same because they, they kind of get it. They're like, okay, yeah, the cap rate's a little bit lower, interest rate's a little bit higher. I, 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 I get that. Mm-hmm. No, but that's never like – we haven't heard that those returns are just aren't, aren't, yeah. aren't too, are just too low. What we're hearing is it's like, you know, it's just hard to make a decision right now with all this other stuff going on. See, and that's what kind of surprises me because, you know, John Chang just told us that CRE investors have their long term horizon. And, you know, we we always talk about the robust, you know, we're not we're not going to be scared. We're not going to flip, go topsy turvy. But I think that there is a little bit of an effect. But my point is, and and I, I feel like, yes, there are there are many macroeconomic trends that could generate this feeling of uncertainty. But on the micro level, I feel like if a syndicator pitches an individual apartment deal to investors and the numbers look fantastic and stand up to scrutiny, I think there are still plenty of people out there that will invest. Uh, There are. And and there are, for sure. Good opportunities will still win the day because you have that long-term mindset. Just some investors get that and they understand the long-term and and some have a hard time. You can even say that you get it, but sometimes it's hard doing what you say. Yeah, and maybe the story that you that could run counter, like like we've tried to st- say before, is certain markets it may be true where things are running so hot that the numbers aren't aren't making sense and the growth's not going to be there. Yeah. But other other places, it may be a story of stability and resilience. You know, amidst uh, you know a whirlwind, this kind of island of stability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, accredited investors can go to great.fund uh, to learn <laughs> That's more. That's exactly guess. right. So let, let's pop into this real page piece, Matt. Again, this NMHC survey, the difference, again, a lot of that kind of hefty grain of salt on these numbers, but the big difference I thought was, I thought was quite interesting. So real page, multifamily construction climbs in March as single family home stalls. Yeah, this is it's is just a little short post on the Real Page Analytics blog. And I think this is an interesting development within the past few years actually. So it's talking about how multifamily has gone a uh, multifamily construction has surpassed single family construction. And that's a little bit of a headline, but if you look at the chart that they have, multifamily is typically above and for years and years as this chart as this chart indicates, multifamily permitting has hovered above has hovered above single family permitting and only really since the pandemic has single family outpaced multifamily and only for for a yeah. short while. Basically, I think that we're returning to normalcy in a, in a way and multifamily has a little bit more room to grow. I don't think that it's it's that much of a story of something unusual happening. Maybe yeah. something unusual is ending. <laughs> yeah, just kind of going back and forth. Yeah. Um, well, that makes sense. And it kind of uh, it further makes sense when you understand that there's, there's going to be more renters and that's, out there. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what I was going to say, too. It's like the the easy story that I thought of at first was without seeing that chart is like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course, there's going to be more multifamily permitting because of this mortgage situation and the cooling, you know, the cooling growth of the housing market. Yeah. But also, I think typically it's just it's just returning to the mean. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, apartment list. National Rent Report, um, apartment list puts some decently high frequency information out, kind of covering where, and they do a lot of kind of granular, more local, you know, market reports as well that are really good. But so Matt, but Matt, what's the headline over here at the apartment list? Yeah, so they say that rents are up by about 0.9% last month. Put that in context, if you have a full year of that, that amount of monthly growth, you'll get about about 12% 
rent growth, maybe plus or minus. Additionally, this monthly rent growth is higher than what was measured in 2019 and higher than really all but one month in in 2018. At the same time, this 0.9% increase is a little bit lower than the 1% inflation. That's kind of surprising. And I wonder if if this is going to fuel more rent growth or or what's what's the feedback loop there if, if inflation is going to erase all of this, all of this rent growth. Or it, it infl- in, erase the rent growth or continue to drive it or, or to finally put a kind of a damper. Well, I'm damper. sorry. I'm sorry. Not what erase, but basic, basically outpace it. So if oh, yeah. so if rent growth and, and this is good for renters, but not necessarily good for investors, if inflation is increasing it faster than rents, that might be a problem for investors. It makes it a little bit less profitable. Potentially. Um, I mean, it really hurts the the consumer as well. Now, if, if inflation is really outpacing rent, which doesn't usually happen, rent typically outpaces yeah. inflation. I guess in that that inverse, you know, the renters saving a little bit, a little bit more, not having to pay more rent, but typically that means that there's move to to move yeah. rent up as well. Really, the the big question is if you know, with, as interest rates are rising, does that decrease investment? Businesses stop hiring, and you know, people lose people. I think there. I think it may be more likely that we'll see a little bit of a lag. And, and rent rent and inflation maybe next month will be will be higher rent growth because of the inflation that was experienced earlier yeah. earlier in earlier months well and you see you know the, it's obviously you know the rental season it's highly seasonal it's every single year you have strong rent growth in the spring and the summer um, with July being kind of peak I mean every single year July is almost always almost always the peak I mean even in the the pandemic it was the two the month that we actually saw some rent growth on a, on a national basis. But we're already kind of outpacing what we would typically do on a normal year. We're just we're going to see if we have an insane May, June and July and August or if it's going to be kind of more typical to past years. Yeah. And and so far, again, this comes back to the issue of occupancy and again the availability of single family homes and mortgage rates and if you have more individuals deciding that they're not going to buy a single family home they're going to decide they're going to rent they're going to stay renters you have more renters created every single year as people get over you know kids they graduate Mm -hmm. from college they need a place to stay and if people aren't kind of getting and moving out of the apartments into single family homes they're staying in those apartments they're filling them up even yep. more, and that's going to increase rents. Um, just because if you're 100% occupied, you have one unit available. It's like, well, I'm going to see what I can get for it. Who wants it? There's yeah. one person out there will you know pay 100 bucks more. And that's what the, this report does give a little bit of a clearer picture for vacancy. I think that the story is still out there. I think that there's still some unknowns when it comes to rents, but I could see the vacancy seems a little bit maybe more stable. It's at 4.6 percent currently as measured by apartment yeah. lists, which is below historical norms, which is good, and doesn't look like it will get back to pre-pandemic levels for some time, given the lack of multifamily supply and the consistently high demand for apartments that's really yeah. coming at it from all angles. We shall see. So and this is just another way of looking at rent growth or breaking it down each year. I mean, we're kind of right. I mean, we're kind of tracking more normal than than we certainly were last year. Yeah. So I, I think that's interesting. I think that's definitely inter- interesting, although above where we typically are but not nearly as where we, where we were in 2021 and that is makes sense and um, is kind of a good thing Matt to your point 
Looking at the vacancy index, yeah, really, really low vacancy. I guess we bottomed out at 3.8 in 2021. The question is, will we see similar levels? And, and that was immediately corresponds with that incredible rent growth. Yeah. You know, occupancy really kind of topped, vacancy bottomed, and rent growth really pushed in the mid to late summer. We'll have to see. Well, it was 6.4%, you know, in 2019, in April. Yeah. So. Who's, who knows? That, to me, implies that'll drive rents up further. Yeah. So, Matt, still been trying to figure out this color graph. Uh, obviously, <laughs> I mean, I know it's rent growth, and the colors are ranging, you know, plus my plus three percent or more or minus three percent or more i don't I, I don't understand this though a lot of red in 2021 and not as much red so far but we were only just in the beginning of 2022 yeah i think when it comes to markets the slowest growing and this has been the same for the past months and for a long time is uh san jose and and san francisco and really you see a lot of slow growth in minneapolis that's the other one you know oh, there man. are these minneapolis traditionally high cost markets like san francisco san jose and washington dc but then nestled in them there is is minneapolis still has still has a lot of time to go a lot of yeah yeah and then there's a handful of uh, of midwestern markets that are are growing they're just not growing as fast as as the rest of the country so interesting um rent estimates you know, who knows what we're going to see? I mean, negative five to 40%. It's an incredible range. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these 40%. I mean, Clearwater, Florida, since March of 20, 42% year over year right now is 27%. Month over month, 1.4. That That's uh, that's bonkers. Uh, Miami, rent growth since 20, 29%. Month over month, 1.4. Incredible. Now, to your point, Matt, let's look at, let's look at you know, Minneapolis. Oof. Or if I can get on the right, oof, net minus five percent since twenty. That's just that's just rough. That's that's rough. But let's look at maybe like Indianapolis, eighteen point two percent since March of twenty, one point five percent month over month rent growth. Uh, that actually beat some of those Florida markets, man. If if I'm not too mistaken. And then looking at Carmel, twenty nine. And see, th- this is where people miss out, and why we like Indianapolis is there are all these little sub markets that are just mm-hmm. on fire. This is you're you're getting. Sunbelt level rent growth for Midwest prices yep. and Midwest cap rates. 29% since 20, and we've, there's more than one. Greenwood, 20, 26.9% since 20. Down here in Bloomington, yeah, it's 17. That's not bad. But a lot of good, a lot of good growth. Evansville, 19%. Fort Wayne is 22%. South Bend, Mishawaka, 22%. A lot of good, a lot of good opportunities around the Midwest. Lexington, Kentucky, twenty percent since twenty, one point five month over month. That's really strong. And so again, Florence, Kentucky, a lot of really just you know solid growth um, in a handful of markets. Memphis is doing really pretty well. You know, again, you got your New York City's not doing that great in uh, compa- compared. You know, nine point seven. We 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 shall see. And again, what people. What everyone sometimes misses, and most people are a little bit more up to date, is the difference between market rent growth and the difference between the current leases and the and that market rent, and how long it's going to take to absorb that yep. that that growth. Because you don't flip over all the leases to the mark, new market rent just on in a day. You know, mm-hmm. it takes time because you typically on renewals you're raising those increases at a much slower rate. 
Your new market rents may be 20%, but the renewal rates may only be 5% or, le- or lower, lower. And so it takes time to turn those over. And so you're going to have baked in organic rent growth in multifamily over the next couple of years. Yeah. And so that's that's something that shouldn't be ignored mm-hmm. to perspective um, people who want to invest into multifamily is that there's a lot of upside that's kind of baked into a lot of this. Yeah. And and if you find that submarket, you know, there's a lot of people that that are really hooked on that idea and, you know, flocked to investors flocking to places like Phoenix, you know, or, yeah. or Miami or, or Tampa. Yeah. And they're really maybe over predicting and that's made it incredibly competitive. But those opportunities are still in other places. You know, there are light, light color, you know, red zones within, you know, a larger, maybe blue. Yeah. And, cold. And, and so what they're saying is, okay, well, we're not going to basically get any cash flow because the capital rate is so low and we're having to pay such a high purchase price in the first year, two or three years. And eventually we'll squeeze out some cash flow near the end, but then we're going to sell it for a ton because we've, yeah. we've, we've raised, we've increased NOI and we're mm-hmm. going to sell it a little or, or tell for a ton because rents are still going to keep growing just like they did yeah. in the past. Yeah. And, but you, if you think you can just factor in just continued rent growth year after year after year, mm-hmm. you can find yourself in a yeah in, in a bad situation pretty quick especially if you know if the music stops all of a sudden and you mm-hmm. haven't set up your investment to hold long term that's why you know in the past you know i would when i didn't have a problem using a bridge loan but right now having to sell or refinance in two years yeah that 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 makes me a little bit nervous and again it just opens up uh, a degree of risk that wouldn't be present um otherwise mm-hmm. and that's where it's like well, we can put on you know 10 year a 10 year um term 10-year term loan again it gives us just so much more flexibility now uh, albeit you're probably gonna your returns are probably gonna your potential returns are going to decrease but also the risk of loss decreases significantly also yeah not that a lot of people you know lose the multifamily it's certainly possible i think that you know the default rate and you not is like you know under a percent so mm-hmm. Not only the hard, very few of these projects fail, but you know your risk is really under performance. Typically, mm-hmm. I mean the real risk is total loss of capital, hundred hundred percent. You know to be clear, but usually when a project doesn't go well, just the return is much not as good as yeah. you think. And that's fortunately, surprisingly, not too common, but it certainly does happen. That's why it's important to be partnered with the right group, mm-hmm. right operator. Yep. All right. If you'd like to learn more about um, multifamily investing, uh, the industry, real estate investing in general, make sure we're, first you, you've liked this video, you've subscribed, you give us a comment below because um, if you may have seen on previous videos, if you give us a good comment, we will feature it on the next episode of The Gray Report, give you our take and really talk to you about it. So we'd like to interact with you all. So make sure you leave that comment below. Um, you can reach out to Matt or I on LinkedIn. You know, we're relatively active there. But if you'd learn, like to learn more about actually investing with us in the Gray Fund, if you are an accredited investor, you can go to just type in your browser, gray.fund to learn more. But I'd be amiss to not mention, if you are not getting the Gray Report newsletter, I mean... Matt, we've had some incredible reviews and testimonials about the newsletter and, like and the Gray Report YouTube podcast in general. But man, we've gotten some great feedback recently. Some people saying that, you know, it's their go-to source. I mean, like not just sit telling us that, but it is their go-to source that they are feeding for their entire business. Uh, it, it's a true intelligence aggregator. So that's what we, what we try out. to do. <laughs> and to, it, it's so awesome to hear because we yeah. just started doing this. I remember getting together like, let's, let's do a newsletter. Mm-hmm. Let's start gathering information because it's hard to, it's not disseminated well. 
And we're like, okay, sure. Yeah, we can put these articles together. And, and you've just like totally crushed it and done a great job every single week. Thanks. But uh, again, we kind of started doing it for us yeah. in a yeah. way. And maybe people would be interested. But now to hear people who are in the industry that, you know, that I really respect saying like, no, this is my go-to source for any kind of information on the multifamily industry. Mm -hmm. And so just a lot of great feedback. Again, a lot of much of the credit is is to you, Matt. So keep, <laughs> well, if keep you don't doing like it. it, you can comment on this video. <laughs> exactly. There are there is uh, options for regress. That's right. So catch us on the next episode of the Gray Report. Make sure you're signed up for the Gray Report newsletter, graycapitalllc.com/newsletter. You can always check the updates every single day, graybreport.com. And again, if you are a multifamily investor that is accredited, hop on over to just gray.fund. Let us know that you're interested. Looking forward to talking to you soon. My name is Spencer Gray. We got Matt Bosnoggle. Catch you in the next one.